It's exciting to be with you. Two days in a row. Uh, taking inventory. You know, yesterday was a good example of this because we got like 20 different projects going on all at the same time. And you're not quite sure how many people you're going to have. Uh, some skilled labor, some not as skilled, but hearts, great hearts. Some had to work, but they sent gallons of coffee. Thanks, Carolina. It's awesome. But, you know, it's one time a year we do this massive group project as a church. And as kind of the manager of the whole event, since it's not something I do on a regular basis, you're not always sure how do the supplies, how do the tools, how does everything kind of work out so that we can keep everybody busy the maximum amount of time. And yesterday... Everything worked out perfectly, but there was a moment with about an hour to go where we thought the limiting factor was going to be um, plastic bags. You know, that is the last thing I thought might limit our progress. You know, you're thinking about rakes and shovels and gloves and, and wheelbarrows and power tools and all this kind of stuff. And you think, oh, two big rolls of contractor plastic bags. Oh, yeah, that'll be enough. But it's amazing when you get 60, 70, 80 people cleaning up trash, the amount of bags that you can fill. And, uh, you know, Felix somewhere, I think, just went into a trailer and God gave him another roll of bags. And, and so we didn't run out. We had like three bags left at the end of the day. Uh, but inventory is important. I had a... A friend of mine up in Toronto, Kester Dawkins, and he was in charge of internal auditing for Costco at one of the stores in western Toronto. And so we would have talks. And I just said, you know, Kester, you got to help me with something here. Okay, you're in charge of, you know, theft control and all that. What is the deal with you go through the checkout and then like 20 feet later they look at your receipt again? As if I've run to the back and added like all this stuff to my cart. And he said, oh, that has nothing to do with the customer. And I said, well, then why do they do it? And he goes, 97% uh, of theft that occurs at Costco's is internal theft. It's employees stealing stuff. And he said, what that is, is accountability on the checkout people because what the checkout people do is they have their buddies come through the line and they only ring in one of 10 items and he goes so the checkout people have to do their job because they know 20 feet from now somebody else is going to just scan through the receipt and go did they ring everything in and he goes all that is is a control system make sure the the checkout people are honest it has nothing to do with the customer you know, if you're in any kind of business where you sell things or you have products, inventory is something you have to take on a regular basis because you can get massively faked out thinking we're cranking. 
And then at the end of the year, go, wait. We got 200 computers. We've sold 100, but we only have 40 left on the shelf. You know, that'll ruin your profit margin in a hurry. You know, inventory is a simple process, not, sometimes not so simple, of going through and counting exactly what you have of everything in store. And it's really important in the Christian life that we're willing to take the time every so often just to take an inventory of where's my life at? How am I doing? Now, for some people, this is just a totally negative experience. Oh, gosh, I'm going to feel like a failure because I'm going to see all the things that I'm not doing. But a lot of times with inventory, you can see growth. Because when you're really close to the situation, you don't see your growth. It's like with our puppy. You know, we see her every day, but then the kids come home, and they're like, wow, she's grown so much. Or a newborn baby. You know, you get those situations, and, and you're out of touch with exactly where you're at, sometimes both good and bad. And so inventory is good, examining yourself so you can know where you're at, so you don't get fooled, and you can set your sights clearly on moving forward. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is talking to Timothy here. He writes him uh, this entire letter and, and is basically trying to help him do a good job uh, being a minister. So this kind of one-on-one -on -one talk, Timothy, here's some input to your ministry, to your leadership. And, uh, you know, so we get some insight into what Paul's trying to accomplish. Well, he's going through a list in chapter 4, and he's, he's saying, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. You've got to watch your life and your speech and your purity and all these kind of things. And then in verse 15, he says, Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You know, Paul tells Timothy that that noticeable progress is important. There's not a one of us that wants to invest in our spiritual life so we stay exactly the same. It's like that, there wouldn't be any point to that. It's like, no, we want to grow. We want to become more like Jesus. We want our life uh, to be more faithful, more loving, more kind, all those fruits of the Spirit. And, and so we make that investment because we want growth. And Paul says, there's two areas, Timothy, I want you to take inventory. He says, the inside and the outside. Now, depending on how you're raised, you may have been taught that only one of the two of these is what's really important. You know, sometimes... Uh, we focus on just the outward actions. Oh, it doesn't even matter what you believe. You don't need to go to church. It doesn't matter if you believe the Bible. It just doesn't matter. Just live a good life. Just be nice to people. Don't do anything wrong, and God will be happy with you. That's the outside-only mentality. Then there's the other side, is everything's about what you believe. But what you did on Saturday night is nowhere consistent with what you're doing on Sunday morning. 
You know, and that's kind of the school of thought I grew up in. Hey, as long as you end up at church on Sunday so you're there worshiping, you know, it's kind of your weekly conscience cleansing. You know, you have your church friends and your church life, and then you have your other friends and your other life and your other activities. But as long as intellectually I'm in the right ballpark, hey, we all make mistakes and we're saved by grace, right? And if anyone challenges that, of course, we pull out the famous passage, judge not, lest ye be judged. And it's important to always quote that in the King James because it's more reverent that way. But Paul tells Timothy, you've got to take inventory. The inside and the outside. We're going to start with the inside. Go to Romans 12. Romans 12. It's another letter by Paul, this to a whole church in Rome. And he does a great study of the superiority of being saved by faith versus works of the Old Testament law. And then he gets to the practical section, as he always has in his books. And here we are in chapter 12. And in verse 1 and 2, he says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. First thing I want to talk about is consecration. That means to set yourself apart for use of, to offer yourself. Yesterday, we had about 20 different projects. Scott mentioned a, not, uh, a number of those different projects. And, you know, we all started as a group. We had uh, coffee and bagels and donuts, and then we said, okay, now here's the projects, and we're going to divide you up. And people offered themselves to be used in that project. Now, you know what's amazing is, is there were a lot of different choices. You know which project we didn't say, hey, now here's another project, and if you'd like to do that, you can come and participate in that. That was the sin project. You know, can you imagine? Here we huddle up at Carousel Ranch. Okay, we've got, you know, trash cleanup. We've got a teardown of these antique eyesore boxes. Uh, you know, we've got sandbagging all this. And those of you that want to sin, you come on over here. And, uh, you know, we'll put you with the 49ers fans. You like that? That's pretty good. No, you know what? We didn't go to Carousel Ranch to sin with our four hours. Like, can you imagine that? You go, what a waste of time. You know what Paul is saying in the Christian life that you have a choice of what you're going to offer your body to be available for. Godliness, Christianity, things that build up one another, 
Or you can offer yourself to sin. You know, a little earlier in the book of Romans, Paul talks about that in, uh, in chapter 6. He says, you know, when you offer yourself to sin, you become a slave to that master. And sometimes we want to absolve ourselves of our decision-making in the process. You can even hear it how we talk about sin in our life. Oh, yeah, you know, and I was just living life, and then I just fell into this. Oh, really? You just fell into it. Like you were just living life, and that sin just, you know, attacked you and made you do it. No. You know what? Our sin always boils down to a choice. Now, interesting thing to do sometime, add up the amount of money and time you spent on sin. And then think, what could I have done with all that? You know, I know uh, being a minister in Toronto, uh, they have what they call the sin tax. That's tax on tobacco products and alcohol. And back when I was there, I, I was never a smoker. Uh, but a pack of cigarettes now is just about eight bucks. And so it's really motivating for righteousness for a smoker to quit because, you know, you start doing the math and you go, man, eight bucks a pack. Think of what you can do with that. And they're like, oh, that's true. I never even thought about that. It's amazing how sin can absorb so much time and money and energy, but we're not thinking about it. But if you just stop, and evaluate your life, and you take inventory and go, am I offering myself to righteousness? You have a choice in the matter. You can volunteer for righteous projects, or you can volunteer for sin. But it's what's on the inside. We're going to talk about actions. But if you don't volunteer for the right thing in the first place, oh, the action is going to fall right along with it. You know, sometimes we volunteer for sinful projects and then we think we're going to be righteous and we go, oh, I don't understand what happened. Well, how did you end up there in the first place? Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. You put yourself in a bad situation, bad things are going to happen. Have you made the decision to set yourself apart for God to use you? God will not use you against your will. He won't make you do righteous things. He will let it be your choice. Christianity is by volunteer. Sometimes, you know, you come to church and you can think, oh, I don't want anyone to control me. You know, I love when, when people say that, oh, you know, Christianity is just so controlling. Like, I wish I had the control that you thought I did. And I would keep you out of a lot more sin. No, it's volunteer basis. So don't worry. Nobody's going to make you do what you don't want to do. So now that you got the pressure off, you got to consecrate yourself. So that means you have to make a decision to say, all right, God, here's my life. Yes, I make myself available for you to use me. I'm not going to volunteer for sin anymore. 
You know, the other side of the ends, uh, uh, taking inventory on the inside, is what are your ideals? What are your goals? What's your way of thinking? Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. The world has definite patterns of thinking. The world does not respect Christianity. It used to. Make, you know, no mistake about it. We no longer live in a Christian nation. You know, it's long gone. The world will not support Christian values. They won't pat you on the back and tell you good job for Christianity. The world will fight against it. You will be outcast. You will be an outsider. You will be a minority. You will be weird. It will be awkward and uncomfortable. And sometimes we get stuck right there. Because we're struggling with having the right goal, the right ideals in the first place. We get influenced by, well, how could the majority be wrong? If all these people disagree, then maybe I'm the one in the wrong. No, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. You know, that word pattern is actually like a foundry mold. The world will just beat you up and melt you and then just make you ooze on into the shape it wants you to be. You don't even have to try and the world will influence you. In fact, the less effort you make, the more influence the world has. But what are your ideals? How do you feel about the Bible? Do you believe it's the word of God? Do you believe it's the owner's manual for life? Or is it just a good book on morality? Jesus rose from the dead. He's not in his grave. You know, all the world religions have some kind of leader, but Jesus is the only one that bodily resurrected from the grave. You can't go visit and see his bones. It sets himself apart. That's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christianity is not just another one of the world's religions. It is the way to get to God and get to heaven. If you're waiting for a pat on the back from the world, it will never come. And Paul's urging the church in Rome. You know, sometimes we think our society is, is just so worldly and it's so hard to be a Christian. Go back and read the history books of what was going on in Rome at this time. The immorality. It even puts our society to shame now. And so it was very clear why Paul told the church, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. We've got we to renew our mind. He said, if you get the right goal, then you can test and approve what God's will is. Like, can you imagine if you're trying to do an accurate inventory count, but you didn't know what the number's supposed to be? Well, we have 50 of these. Well, how many are we supposed to have? I have no idea. Counting 50 things would be completely irrelevant. If you're supposed to have 50, then 50 would be a good number. If you're supposed to have 1,000, 50 would be too low. 
You see, we can't even accurately assess the situation unless we have the right goal to start from. And God's word will bring us there. Give it a chance. Study it out. Read it in a modern translation. You know, I joke a little bit about, you know, quoting in the King James English. We forget the King James English was a modern translation when it was done. People knew what it said. They understood it. It didn't sound like, oh, wow, wow, that's like Shakespeare. Only the highly educated can understand it. No, that was the normal language of the day. There was nothing special about it. It was just modern for that day. But, you know, I was a chemist. I read Shakespeare, and I'm like, I have no idea what was just said. And the King James Bible, now I know what it says only because I know what a modern translation says, and then I go, oh, that's what these words mean. But go back and study it and give it a chance and put it into practice in your life and see what God does with you. But we've got to start from the inside. You can't just try and change the behavior from the out. You've got to do the inside work first. So the consecration and the ideals, offer yourself to the right thing. Now let's talk about the outside. Go to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2. Another uh, book that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And he says this, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Yeah, we're going to talk about a couple different outward components here. One, we're going to talk about the attitude. Now you go, well, isn't that kind of on the inside? Well, yeah, it's both. But he says, do everything without grumbling or complaining. Now, I like to think of this, do everything with gratitude and joy. This is the Christian ought to distinguish themselves with a whole different attitude about life. It should be noticeable because you're holding out the word of life. You're shining like a light in a dark world. You're a star. It's distinct. It should be different. You know, uh, I had Scott do the welcome today because he's just like the most joyful, motivated person I know. He's like so energetic. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, when I think about Scott, I, I think of that joy and energy. And I was laughing yesterday because at the end of our, our event, uh, 
Becky Graham and Denise uh, Tommy, the, the, the two ladies that run the whole operation there, uh, you know, we were having a talk, and they were just commenting on different things. And they said, you know what? Your group is our favorite group, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They said, you know what? The weather today was great, but it's one of the first years that you actually had great weather, and your group was still big. You guys have come out in horrendous conditions and worked hard. And they said, your group is different than the other groups. They said, you know, like, like that guy, you know, Scott. <laughs> we had a lot of Scots, so I wanted to make sure I knew which one. I said the, the shorter, stocky one with the Florida, the blue hat on up at the house. They go, yeah, that one. They go, we were standing next to him every time that you'd say, hey, can I send you 30 more people? And he'd go, oh, yeah, we'll put them to work. We got so much work to do. They said everything that, that you added on his plate, he'd go, we'll get it done. They go, it was awesome. And they said, because we heard you talking to him on the walkie-talkie. See, if you think nobody's paying attention, they are. He said, you know what else we love about your group? You guys clean up. And they said, even Felix and the teens, when they come up on their own. You know, so parents, you know, even though the kids may not do it at home, I just want you to know when they're at Carousel Ranch, they're cranking. And they said, you are the only group that leaves it cleaner than when we start. They said, most of the time, we appreciate all the labor that a group does. And then we have to spend so many hours cleaning up from the mess that they left behind. And they said, but our workers love it because there's nothing to do after you leave. And they said, we just appreciate your attitude. You know, what's your mindset towards life? Now, that's a really challenging verse when Paul says, do everything. You know, it's just an all-encompassing word. Because you know what, how we like to read that verse? Do everything except for the really exceptional situation that requires my grumbling and complaining right now. I believe the verse. But with my special case in my life right now, everything else but this, I agree with this verse. That's why Paul says everything. Because if he just says, don't grumble and complain, we'd let ourselves off the hook. You now, Paul says, everything. This is the greatest test are the things that most would grumble and complain about. You know, sometimes in life, what we feel like are the greatest hardships turn out to be the greatest blessings, but we don't see it. Until maybe a month later or six months later, sometimes years down the road, then we realize, man, I was complaining about this, but this was the best thing that ever happened to me. You see, God loves you. He wants what's best for you. He wants you to become like his son. And he'll use hardships to mold and shape our character. And that's why we should look at everything without grumbling or complaining. It's so easy 
to grumble and complain. I don't know why. You know, they say it, you use a lot less muscles to smile than to frown. It's like 17 to smile and 41 to frown. So we should save energy and smile. But in my life, it's so much easier to be negative than to compliment, to encourage, and to build up. But see, it, with, the, with the attitude, we can shine like stars. You know, then the other side of it is, is the actual actions itself. And, and I'm, I'll put the actions in, in two categories, love and faith. We're going to start with love. Go to 1 John. Now, that's not the big book of John. It's the little one near the end of the entire Bible. 1 John chapter 3. And John, who uh, spent a lot of time with Jesus, said in verse 16, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear friends, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Actions of love. You lay down your life. The more inconvenient it is, the more it's a demonstration of love. The more difficult, the more hardship. You know, it's not easy to lay down your life. You, you can't compartmentalize love. Oh, okay, let me make sure I do one loving thing per day. Okay, you know, let me lay down my life for 15 minutes. Oh, good. You know, I loved at that moment. No. It's a lifestyle. Parents, you will learn really quick how to lay down your life. You have no choice. A baby's helpless. You know, it, it, it will work you over from the inside. You say, I don't want to have to lay down my life. Don't have kids. <laughs> I don't want to lay down my life. Don't get married either. Because great relationships require laying down your life. If you took an inventory of your best friends, you did not achieve them because you just liked the same things. It's time spent, it's sacrifice, it's hardship, it's the good talks, it's the bad talks, it's the joy, it's the sorrows. It's the people you go to when you're at your worst because you know they'll lay down their life for you. You know, it's important when you're loving people. We've heard the book, you know, the, the five languages of love. You know, there's more than five. The bottom line is what the point is. 
is to love somebody means do the things that they consider loving, not the things that you want to do to be loving. You know, honey, for Valentine's Day, I gave you an Xbox 360. I hope you like it. We can bond. We can play video games together. You know, I wanted to go out for a special meal together, so we're going to this restaurant, which so happens to be your favorite restaurant and not their favorite restaurant. And so I tell parents with the kids, you want to spend special time with your kids? Go eat where they want to go. Yeah, it's going to be McDonald's. It's going to be Chuck E. Cheese. And if you educate their palates, then it may be a nice steakhouse. Or sushi restaurant. But the point is, you got to do what they want to do. You want to see a movie? It needs to be a kid's movie. Because that's what they love. You know, it's like it doesn't count just because you're spending time together doing what you want to do. you got to speak their language. So you're taking an inventory. Am I a loving person? Now, do not make the mistake. Do not think that because people are my friends, then I am loving. Most of the people that you know are probably Christians. And the Bible says you have to love everyone, even your enemies. And sometimes we get faked out. Because they're loving you, not because of who you are, in spite of who you are. So I'm like, man, I walk around and all these people tell me I'm great. I must be loving. Nah. Ask people. You got to ask the ones who will be honest without defense mechanism or retribution. If you really want to know, do loving things, lay down your life. You know what? God will give you opportunity, I promise you. If you leave and you go, okay, I'm going to lay down my life for people, I want to be a great servant. I want people to feel encouraged. God will give you the opportunity. You just, you just look around. And as you pray for people, that's where I find, if you pray for people on a regular basis, the Holy Spirit will say, hey, here's a need. Here's a need. What about this? What about that? And God will give you the opportunity to inconvenience your life, to lay down your life, and serve. You know what Carousel Ranch yesterday? That's an act of love. It was amazing. You served. You encouraged. You know, I don't know if you got a chance to go over there and watch the kids getting their, their lessons. You benefited them. You know, that's what love is. You didn't get paid. We just went out there and served. And it was awesome. Keep up the love. Keep up the love. Keep going. And always be taking inventory. 
and take it to the next step. You know, the second type of action are actions by faith. Go over to James chapter 2. Now, see, I'm glad James wrote his book because James took faith out of the intellectual realm and made it an action. And this is really important because, you know, as Paul told Timothy, where we started, watch your life and doctrine closely, that it's really easy to think that since I got stuff on intellectually right, I'm doing good. And James says, no, you know, if your faith is in the right place, your actions will show it. And he says uh, in James chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I want to commend a group of people. It was the people who watched all the little kids yesterday. Because, see, that was, that was an action of faith. You say, well, where was the faith? You believed that there was going to be a lot of great work done at Carousel Ranch. And so you were willing to watch kids at your home, so that by faith, great things would be done at Carousel Ranch. Now I want you to imagine for a moment if we had about 70 or 80 second grade and lowers there yesterday. What life would have been like? I promise you, we would not have gotten close uh, to the amount of work done that we did. We couldn't do what we did without you watching the kids at home. But see, that's what an action of faith is. You know, you can say, oh, yeah, I believe you're going to get a lot of work done, and then do nothing. You say, hey, I'll watch the kids so that those moms and dads can go and crank. But see, that's what an action of faith does. You're not the direct action that happens over here. But you're a foundation that allows good to be done at another point in time. Because, see, faith is always looking forward. It takes faith to invite somebody to church. It takes faith to ask somebody to want to study the Bible. You say, because what you're doing is you're saying, I believe that God can do great things in your life at a future moment. But I'm willing to take that step of faith to make a future action possible. See, as Christians, there's times that what we do has an immediate impact. Actions of faith has an impact the future. You know, every single one of us is here is because somebody had faith in what God could do through us. You know, sometimes it's even after 50 or 100 
of the exact same talk. And we didn't change. But they still stepped out on faith and said one more time. Two more times. Ten more times. I'm not going to give up because there's still the opportunity for God to do great things. You got to take inventory on the inside and on the outside because we want to make progress. We're not trying to stay the same. God puts opportunities in front of us. And the glory is out there. He says, come grab hold of it. I want to close over in Luke 14. Now, Jesus talked about taking inventory. He just used a different, different story. And in Luke 14, he says this in verse 28 to 30. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus says, Hey, I want every one of you to build a tower. But don't get in the middle of the construction project and then start taking inventory. No, do that on the front end. Because maybe you go, well, I'm just not ready to commit to the tower. It's all right. Build up that inventory. Get your supplies ready. Keep praying. Keep studying. Keep investing. But he says, you make sure you got everything in order. Then begin to build that tower. It is a process. You know, taking inventory is not something you do once and go, okay, we're done. Because we want to measure our progress on a regular basis. As we begin this year, we're talking about big changes ahead. We've got to accurately start from the right place and know where we're at to be able to set our sights on the right goal. Paul told Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. We've got to take inventory the inside, take inventory on the outside, and progress together. Onto the goals that God has for each one of us. Let's stand as we close in a final song.